Great praise and worship. Wow. Are you all staying up here? Uh, <laughs> hey, congratulations. Yeah. All right, we did this once before, if you're at a play, it's intermission, it's time to get started, what do they do? Flash the lights, maybe dim the lights, all right, and that indicates that a new act is going to start, and that's where we're at now in our study of the life of David. We're starting Act 4, Act 4. And I said, if I were to write a play on the life of David, I would probably have four acts. His rise to prominence. Remember, he's anointed by Samuel. Defeats Goliath, the mighty military leader. And so he rises to prominence, but he lives about eight years or so on the run because Saul is threatened by him and thinks that he's going to usurp the throne. So David spends years on the run. And after that, after Saul's death and Ishbosheth's death, uh, David rules over all of Israel. And he brings the ark back. He makes Jerusalem his capital. And he enters into this great covenant with God, the Davidic covenant, right? And then last week we were in chapter nine. And what did we talk about? Oh. Well, that, that leaves, I can preach that again next week, I guess, if we don't remember. Mephibosheth, right? Mephibosheth. And David's kindness, his hesed towards Mephibosheth, because he had committed to such with Jonathan, and he'd experienced such from God. So now we are at Act 4, beginning with Chapter 11 of Second Samuel. A few years back, Major League Baseball magazine ran an article titled The Top 15 Baseball Players Who Will Always Have an Asterisk Next to Their Legacy. Yeah. An asterisk, a qualifier. And the article is about great ball players with a tarnished career. You can probably think one of the main reasons somebody's going to end up on this list is because of their use of steroids, drugs. Yep, Barry Bonds, the home run king, leads. 762 home runs, I believe it is. Maybe even a few more than that. But uh, tarnished because of steroid use. Pete Rose is on the list. Any Cincinnati Reds fans? Pete Rose. Mr. Hustle! Right? I mean, it was him. Uh, Some of you, it goes way too far back to remember Pete Rose, but his, his uh, legacy's tarnished because of his betting on the games, games he even played in. <laughs> uh, but the asterisk besides the actress, he bet that they would win. <laughs> That's good, right? <laughs> yeah. And then Shoeless Joe Jackson, 1919. He and his team, the Chicago White Sox, threw the World Series. And so I believe it was the Boston Red Sox who won the series because... 
the Chicago White Sox, showless Joe Jackson, if I can say it, showless, shoeless Joe Jackson, there we go. They threw that series. How did he get his name? When you see a name like that, you want to ask, how did he get his name? Well, evidently, one day he played ball and he got blisters on his feet because of new cleats. And so the next day he went without his cleats and his bare and his socks. And so there the name was given to him and it stuck. He didn't necessarily like it, but shoeless Joe Jackson. There, I got it right. But an asterisk, a qualifier. A tarnished career. In 1 Kings 15, we read of King Abijah of Judah. He he is the great-grandson of David. So it's David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and Abijah. And we read there the following. Abijah walked in all the sins of his father, Rehoboam, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Why? Because David was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. That is the asterisk by David's name. He was wholly devoted to what was right in the sight of the Lord, didn't turn aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And that's where we find ourselves in Second Samuel chapter 11. So open your Bibles. To 2 Samuel 11, take out your notes. Please take out your notes and write down some things for discussion later. And today we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba, David's greatest sin or great sin. It's not his greatest sin, David's great sin. That's the heading in the New American Standard, at least MacArthur's study Bible, so we gave it that title this morning. But actually we're going to see that probably his sin against Uriah the Hittite is a greater sin. That's what deserves the asterisks. His trying to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. When we think of David, there's two stories that we usually are very, very aware of. Anybody out there is aware of. You say, David. Well, what do you remember about David? Well, what? Goliath and Bathsheba. A tarnished record. And so we're in Act 4, David's remorse. And this gets all very, very sad. It does. It's so sad to see a man who did so well struggle so and in many ways end up so poorly. So let's read the first five verses. We're talking about David and Bathsheba. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was, she was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And 
David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Wow. Now, my message this morning from that passage, five verses, just going to have two main points. Two main points, and I work hard on application. Because when it comes to this whole area of sex and sexuality uh, in our culture, we need to work really hard on application, don't we? So hopefully in my working hard on application, I won't offend you, but I am going to talk very frank about this whole area. David and Bathsheba. First main point is this, is that David was not in a good place. David was not in a good place. There he is looking out over Jerusalem. We're familiar with the idiom, he wasn't in a good place. Meaning he wasn't doing well. He wasn't where he should be. And it seems from our verses that David wasn't in a good place. David was in Jerusalem when he should have been fighting with his army in Rabbah. Verse 1, it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Would you read that last sentence with me? But David stayed at Jerusalem. Our writer seems to be making the point that David wasn't where he should have been. That he was neglecting his responsibilities as king to lead the army. And I happen to think that what is being intimated is that David is becoming soft. How old is he at this point? Probably about 50 years old. He's fought a lot of battles. But but the intimation seems to be he's becoming soft and maybe irresponsible and maybe even drifting in his relationship with God. The army went to fight at Rabbah, but David stayed back in Jerusalem. A, A second way David wasn't in a good place, and this isn't from our passage, this precedes our passage, but David had many wives and concubines. David probably had at least, at least eight wives that we know of, probably more, at least ten concubines, probably more. And so David's past choices had put him in a bad place. So it all just didn't start that day in Jerusalem. There's a history to this. In Deuteronomy 17, the Mosaic Moses wrote, or Mosaic writings, Moses wrote, uh, here it is uh, in chapter 17, Deuteronomy, and verse 16, instructions for kings. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And then verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will what? Turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And so the instructions were, the king in this position of authority and power was not to multiply wives, and David had disobeyed God's instructions. 
has a history to it. But he finds himself in a bad place in this area of, of, of marriage and his sexuality. Warren Wearsby, our dear friend Warren Wearsby, he writes of David and his being in Jerusalem. And he said, while his men were out risking their lives, David stayed at home idle. When David laid aside his armor, he took the first step towards moral defeat. And then he uses that as, and it talks about us and our armor. And he says the same principle applies to believers today. Without the helmet of salvation, we don't think like saved people. And without the breastplate of righteousness, we have nothing to protect the heart. Lacking the girdle of truth, we easily believe lies. We can get away with this. And without the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, we are helpless before the enemy. Without prayer, we have no power. As for the shoes of peace, David walked in the midst of battles for the rest of his life. He was safer on the battlefield than on the battlement of his own house. I want to give two applications to this idea that David was not in a good place. And the first one is this, don't think this can't happen to you. And here's this path leading to a toxic dump of some sort. Don't think that sin, in particular sexual sin, can't happen to you. Well, we're all familiar with this story, but, but, but in a sense, had we not read it before, all of this seems rather shocking, isn't it? Rather startling, isn't it? I mean, we're familiar with the, the movement of the story with David, but had you not read it before, wouldn't you kind of take a double take? It'd be rather shocking and startling. David is 50 years old, has had decades of a vibrant relationship with God. It was said of David that he was a man after God's own heart. Tremendous accomplishments as he was used by God to bring Israel to the place that it was. His defeat of Goliath, his bringing the ark to Jerusalem, his defeat of the Jebusites, making Jerusalem his capital. This covenant he enters into with God. It's all rather startling, isn't it? Who would have thought it would happen to David? First Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. The context is that of involvements, in particular back then, involvements eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And in chapter 10, Paul basically makes the point that privilege, and he talks about the privilege that the Jews had had, didn't guarantee they couldn't fail. And in that context, he makes this point, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so we need to be careful putting ourselves in bad places, thinking that we can't fall. It can't Happened to me, can it? Don't you think most people say that? At least the vast majority. They never think it could happen to me. Boy, we need to learn from David, don't we? Focus on the magazine, and I'm going to read a little bit of a story here. 
uh, titled uh, Dancing on the Edge, Focus on the Family. It starts out, the subtitle really is, you think it won't happen to you, can happen to you. you. You think there's no way. Not me. Think again. Flirting with danger. I thought I was innocent at the time. She, she was a church staff member, so we spent a lot of time together. She'd sit in my office and we'd talk. At times she told me about the difficulties in her marriage and I counseled her. I should have stopped her right there. I was filling a need that I had no right to fill. We never touched, we never kissed, we never even verbalized our underlying feelings, but there was a definite attraction, and I liked that vibe. It was fun. For me, it was all in my mind, but it progressed from there. I started thinking about her on weekends. I I kept telling myself, I can handle this. It hasn't gone too far. It's okay. But it could have. The opportunity was waiting Occasionally I got scared. I'd think, I don't want to do this. I've got a great wife. I have a family. I don't want to go down this road. And and while it was somewhat fun knowing I was getting away with something, it also gnawed at me. I knew it wasn't right. Then one day I was on the phone in my office, and she came up behind me and pinched my rear end. That's when fear finally kicked my senses back into my head. I'm going to talk to my wife about this, I told her. I actually first spoke with the senior pastor of the church, and then I went home. I I hadn't physically cheated on my wife, but my mind had already gone that direction. I was unfaithful in my thoughts and not telling my wife what I knew was happening, but didn't want to admit. I had to tell her now. I had compromised my relationship both with the Lord and with my wife. I, I loved her, still do. In fact, there was nothing terrible in our relationship. I thought we had a solid marriage. What's really scary... I had a good marriage, and I was still vulnerable. Imagine what might happen if somebody's in a bad marriage. Wow. But I don't think it can happen to you. Here's a pastor at a church struggling with it. Don't think sin, and particular sexual sin, can happen to you. And in thinking it can happen to me, become casual and complacent and compromising. And in all of that, letting the guard down, just like this guy did, and wondering, how did I ever end up way over here? It started way back. Casual, complacent, compromising. Second application is this. Don't think it all just happened. Just walk down this to- this road to a toxic dump. Don't think it all just happened. I made the point that David's sin didn't just happen. It came as a result of, of compromise, being in Jerusalem when he should have been with the army and Rabbah, multiplying wives and concubines. It didn't just happen, right? In my notes, I've got this statement. The best defense is a good offense. The best defense is a good offense. And what do I mean by that? That the best way to say no to sexual sin is to, in in an offensive way, in, in a positive way, have a vibrant relationship with God. And in fact, Jonathan White, wherever you are, that was his point when it comes to worship. Right? That's what worship does in a sense. And I don't know if he used this word. It, it helps inoculate us against sin. Right? To, to, to know who our God is, to have this vibrant relationship with Him. Oh, that, that, that's where I think the answer lies. That, that's been true of my life as I've battled with sexual uh, these issues. The, the strength comes from I love God. 
As Paul would say, the love of Christ constrains me. It lays hold of me. It keeps me in check from those things. Bruce Wilkinson, Seven Laws of the Learner. I just bought a copy of that for Zach Hale. Where are you at, Zach? Uh, we're going to read it together, aren't we? All right, now look at that. He's committed to you, so thumbs up. Bruce talks about uh, being a youth pastor. But, but he realized that, that he wanted more. He wanted the deeper things of God, the secrets of, uh, of the deeper life. And so he went off to seminary. He went to Dallas Seminary in Texas. Enrolled, and it was the first day of classes, chapel. Oh, the speaker was Dr. John Wolverd. Dr. John Wolverd. And Bruce was this, he was going to speak on the secrets of the spiritual life. Oh, Bruce was just keyed up. You know, that's why he went to seminary. And he was in, he said he was in chapel and, and on the one leg he had his Hebrew Bible and the other his Greek Bible. And I don't know how he did that as a freshman. Probably good. And he had his recorder. And, and, and then when, uh, uh, Wolvert said, I'm going to speak on the deeper secrets of the spiritual life. Oh, oh, he about came out of his skin. This is why I'm here. He said, my heart stopped. Checked the recorder. And Wolvert went on to say, there are three primary secrets of the spiritual life which will influence us more than anything else. Three secrets of the spiritual life that will influence us more than anything else. What are they? Tell me. What are they? What are they? What are these secrets? They are, first, read your Bible every day. Second, walk by means of the Spirit. And third, pray without ceasing. And Wilkinson says, I don't think I heard another word of that chapel. Those were the secrets of the spiritual life. I couldn't believe it. You mean that's the best you got? That's the best you got. Those are the secrets of the spiritual life. And he said about 20 years later, as he's writing this, he realized those are the secrets of the spiritual life. How do we say no to sexual sin or sin of any kind? It's through having a vibrant relationship with the living God. Being people of the book constantly in the book. Being people of prayer constantly in prayer. Being people who walk in the fullness and by means of the Spirit. Being people of worship. Those are the things that will inoculate us against sexual sin. Help us walk in victory. And I know it becomes redundant because as a pastor and and a preacher, oftentimes this is where we end up. It's kind of, this is application. You need to read your Bible more and pray more. Hopefully we have more meat to it than that, and we work hard at it here, but, but, but we don't ever move away from those things. You want to walk in obedience to God? Then you've got to be in His Word. A person of prayer who walks in the fullness of His Spirit and engages in worship with the people of God on a regular basis. And I'll throw in one more thing. It helps to be around other people of God who have those same commitments and hold us in good stead. Amen? Yeah. All right, second point. First point. First major point was David was not in a good place. We see that he's in Jerusalem when he should have been with the army at Rabbah. Uh, Second main point, David went from a bad place to a worse place. Oh, he went from a bad place. He was in a bad place. But he ended up in a worse place. And there's a clear progression, I believe, we see in our verses. The fact that David saw, inquired, and took. 
First of all, David saw, verse 2, now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And so it starts out with this look, this long look, obviously. He saw and then he inquired, verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And one of his counselors, or those he asked, said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It's almost as if this person who's answering him is checking him. Isn't he? Wanting to say to David, look, David, this is Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Iliam, and, and she's married, David. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, these names probably mean very little to you. But there's a real history of these names with David. Because were we to go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, we would find them listed in David's 30 mighty men. David knew these guys. He fought side by side in the great battles that he had been victorious in. He knew these guys. Uriah the Hittite. Eliam. He knew them. He had fought with them. And, and yet, yet despite that, he takes her. He should have been checked, right? Look at what's happening. David, what are you doing? These are the best of the best. These are, are the guys you would lay down your life for. And you're going to take his wife? David took. He saw, he inquired, he took. Verse 4. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And so this clear progression, do you see it there? He looked. He inquired, he took. And we have that same kind of dynamic. It's interesting in James 1. James talks about progression into sin. And he speaks of it as as really conceiving sin. And James says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Well, if it's not from God, then who is it? Who's it from? But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so there's this progression here that James gives us, this conceiving of sin. And it goes this way. There is lust plus opportunity, which we would call temptation. The lust of the heart, the opportunity presents itself. And when it's acted upon, what does it lead to? Conception. Something is birthed out of that. Sin is birthed out of that. And from there, James says, it leads to death. Back to Second Samuel 11. It's a month or two after their time together that the word comes. David, I am pregnant. I'm pregnant. And we know that usually those are supposed to be words of joy, aren't they? 
When the woman comes to her man and says, I'm pregnant. Oh, wow. But not in this case. And from here, things are going to get messy. And we move from his great sin with Bathsheba to, I believe, his greater sin with Uriah. All in his attempts to cover it up and conceal his sin. Things get messy real quick. And actually, I say real quick, they do, but he's going to try to cover this up for probably a year or longer before who walks into his life? A faithful prophet. And points the long bony finger, if you will, into David's face and says, David, you have sinned, and God is calling you out. Right? We'll be there. That's chapter 12. Application. First application is this. David missed the opportune time to act. To to, to cut it all off. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. He saw a woman bathing. Took this long, extended look. I, I, I won't do my siren, but that's when the siren should have went off in his mind and his heart. At that point, there should have been that screaming in his spirit and in his thoughts. David, this is not right. David, you need to put your thoughts and energies elsewhere. You need to flee. David, you need out. Don't wait. Don't take another look. You need to stop. Flee. Go take a cold shower. Grab your Torah and read Scripture. Go for a walk. But you need to flee. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lust. Flee. He missed the opportune time. All right, he was in a bad place. Oh, to never get there. But then once he saw Bathsheba, it's when he saw her. Because this is all going to get going, isn't it? And it's going to end badly for them. Harold Myra has written a book, Is There a Place I Can Scream? And he's got a chapter in it, Why the Jet Sex Engine. I've read this to you before. I'll just read part of it. It goes this way. Why the jet sex engine? Why why made sex so powerful, Lord, like a 20-pound gland and a 100-pound body? Did did you misengineer, Lord? Are are we misdirected gluttons? Lord, your ways are best. I fully believe it. Yet yet there's still the pressure. Why this 727 jet sex engine in my Volkswagen body? Why must it keep grabbing my brain? It's got to be powerful, sure, to keep the species going. But if you toned it down a little, Lord, I'm sure I'd get around to my part. My point is this, is that when our jet sex engine gets revved up, it's really hard to dial it back. Yep. I don't want to say too much, but we realize that when David saw her, that's when he had to shut it all down and do something else. Because once things got moving, there was no stopping this. Right? Or it's a lot harder to stop it. Application number two. David's sin was David's fault. 
James 1, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And, and in time, David is going to acknowledge that, isn't he? We will want to blame somebody else or say that. And, and he wasn't alone in this. But David's sin was David's fault. And we'll probably spend a Sunday looking at the penitential psalm, Psalm 51, because it's the psalm he writes after Nathan confronts him and he repents. We've got to look at that psalm, don't we? Psalm 51. Yep. And in there David says, Oh, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Yeah. David's sin was David's fault. And we find him finally acknowledge that and own up to the fact that it's my fault. Yeah. I'm not going to point the finger at anybody else. I put myself here. John Freeman wrote a book called Hide or Seek. It's really to help men in this whole area of sexuality. And his first chapter is titled, No One Escapes Our Scandalized, Pornified Culture and Its Consequences. No One Escapes Our Sensualized, Pornified Culture and Its Consequences. And he starts out in the very first chapter of his book recounting a conversation that a woman had with him. And he relates as he had been preaching at a church in Florida. And he says, recently had, she said to him, I recently had asked my husband of 20 years to leave our home due to an unrepented and therefore undealt with pornography problem. Our 20 year old son called us this week from another state to tell us he's gay. Our 16-year-old daughter has been in counseling for some time now for cutting and self-mutilation after frequenting some very explicit cypress sex sites for several years. It had become an overwhelming secret in her life, and she just didn't know how to handle the shame and guilt and feelings of being out of control with it. Then just recently, my brother's wife left him to pursue a lesbian relationship with another woman. John takes back up. He said, I had just finished preaching at a church in Florida, and afterwards, as I was shaking hands at the door of the sanctuary, I felt a tap on my shoulder. And a lady, probably just a few years younger than myself, asked, Mr. Freeman, can we talk for a moment? And I walked her over to a corner of the sanctuary so we could speak privately. And she related to me the situation summarized above that I just read to you. He says, I was stunned by her candor. It was the utter frankness of her last statement over that rendered me almost speechless. She said... Sexual sin and brokenness of one type or another has impacted every significant relationship in my life. Sexual sin and brokenness of one type or another has impacted every significant relationship in my life. The point I want to end with this morning is that in our culture, the rails have come off, right? The rails in our culture that used to kind of keep things contained... The wheels have come off the cart. And we now realize that we live in a culture where anything and everything goes. And are you to oppose that? You will be labeled in some very negative way. Am I not right? Yeah. Anything and everything goes. 
And so I sense very strongly the importance of this whole topic as your pastor. Because I realize you live out there in that culture. And so it's kind of like, how do I remain pure in a world that has kind of culture that has come off the rails and the pressure is constantly there. It's 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 constantly there and does not go away. How do I? This is right where we live, isn't it? That's why I was thinking in the past I preached out of this passage and I just did one message on chapter 11. It's called, I can't motor past this. This is where we live. We have to be open and honest and with candor in talking about these things. But this is the place to talk about them, right? In a wholesome way, understanding God's Word. Now, I happen to believe that in this whole topic, there are some of you here now that the Spirit of God is tearing you up inside because you know that you are being spoken to about these issues in your life. Now, I'm not here to single you out. I'm not here to point fingers at anybody. But I know our culture and the struggles in our culture. And so my encouragement to you is, call me this week. Or call the Biblical Counseling Center and let this be kind of Nathan who's willing to speak up and say, hey, there's something in your life that has to be dealt with. Because I understand our culture and understand the challenges. And so there are probably many here who are struggling these very issues. And you need a church and a pastor who will speak to them and say, all right, now's the time to deal with it. Today's the day. There can be freedom. Because there is freedom. Right? We can find freedom in these areas of our lives so as to honor God. We're going to turn our attention to the communion table. And what a fitting time to do it. Because this is all about forgiveness. I don't think anybody... I don't want to overstate this, but I've lived in this culture long enough. I'm 65. I I know the struggle. You may look, well, you're 65. There's no area of sexuality. You don't deal with that at all, do you, Pastor Joel? If you think I don't... You're mistaken, but if you don't think I have, you're mistaken in the past, right? We all struggle with these things. Oh, and to understand where freedom is found, it's found in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so the beauty of the communion table, it speaks of this forgiveness. The forgiveness, the restored relationship. And, and then as we've been talking, as we talk about worship and, and these things, the glory of who Christ is capturing our minds and our hearts so that we want to live in obedience. Amen? So we're going to the communion table. Before we do, Tim, I think you have a song we're going to sing. Yield not to temptation. Weren't we going to do that first? Let me praise the praise team's coming up. Father, we give you praise. We thank you we're in a setting where we can talk about your word and a very tough topic and be honest with your word. Looking at the life of David Boyd, have we admired this guy? And when it's all said and done, we're still going to look back and admire him. But we're at this point in his life where he, he would look back and he'd, there'd be this great remorse I made choices I never should have made, compromises I never should have entered into. I became casual. I became soft. I became somewhat indifferent. Oh, Father, stir our minds and our hearts with the glory of the gospel. 
may we walk in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And deal with us as your people. Here even now, your spirit working in our minds and our hearts, speaking into our lives. We want that. We want the freedom that comes from your activity. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.